Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, host of this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. Before you all start rushing in to complain, Farah is not in today, it's just me. And on the show this week, we have David Wooten, the historian, and Giles Fraser, the reverend and journalist, on Power, Pleasure and Profit, which is the title of David Wooten's new book. The podcast is about the philosophical roots of the pursuit of power, pleasure and profit in our society and where that comes from in the works of Enlightenment philosophers. We hope you enjoy listening to this week's podcast. Hello, I'm Giles Fraser. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. And I'm here with David Wooten. And uh, so you're well known for uh, writing about the history of science. You've written about Galileo. You've written about um, doctors and various other things, and last year, end of last year, um, published this, I have to say, very beautiful-looking um, book, Power, Pleasure and Profit, Insatiable Appetites from Machiavelli to Madison. And uh, I read this as a sort of, this was a great eye-opener to me, so I'm really, really looking forward to talking to you about it, because it has this sort of this way in which you describe this bridge that happened around the time of the Enlightenment in which uh, morality changes from the sort of, you know, I guess the courtly morality or the morality of knights and clerics and so forth through the Enlightenment to sort of where we are today. That's the sort of part of the big story. Uh, and one of the things is which I find fascinating is the way in which... Um, you tell a story about how uh, selfishness, for want of a better word, ends up being morally respectable. <laughs> is that a fair way of characterizing it? Your yes, book? that's absolutely the story. Selfishness is a word that's invented in the 1640s. There was no notion. Before that, you can talk about self-love. Self-love, I think, is different from selfishness because if you love yourself, you think you're better than the next person. Self-love implies a sort of community in which you say, "I'm." selfishness is entirely isolated. I want this. I want that. I may have to take it from other people. In that sense, selfishness doesn't – you don't have to be admirable to be selfish. Well, to have self-love, you have to attribute to yourself some sort of good qualities. So selfish people – the idea of selfishness is an idea of an amoral value-free world. And that comes into existence in the early 17th century. People immediately turn around and say to Hobbes, he's talking about selfishness. And that's one of the first uses of the word. And Hobbes talks at great length about competition, which is another new word. We assume the world, people are competitive. Society involves competition. There's no notion of competition before that. Okay, just to position this so I'm clear about it. You know, I mean, I'm a vicar. I preach sermons all the time, and I, I, I mean, I'm, my father was a vicar. Oh, so yeah. it's a, the world I'm familiar with. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I talk about, uh, I talk about Christianity, and I talk about Christianity and selfishness. About the Christian, one of the sort of things about Christianity is it's a, it's a a, a way of combating selfishness. But that's a sort of a historical way of putting it. That's a modern way of putting it. Yes. One of the things I go into some length in the book because it puzzles me uh, is the notion of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan does good to somebody in distress because that's the right thing to do entirely unselfishly. He sacrifices himself for the welfare of somebody else. It's only in the 18th century that the Good Samaritan begins to be interpreted in that way. Okay. Before that, the Good Samaritan is a figure who stands for Christ. He is therefore someone you can't possibly imitate because 
sinlessness is something that only can be found in Christ. And in that sense, he's never presented as a role model. By the 18th century, the Good Samaritan is for Christian theologians becomes a role model and also for secular thinkers and he gets held up as an example of charitable activity and so on and that's an entirely new way of reading the parable of the good samaritan and it becomes for us what you know the core of christianity but it's not the core of christianity before the 18th century so why is this so significant why is this 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 as it were invention of selfishness as it were why is this so uh, significant it's significant so many reasons. Okay. It's, it's a new view about morality. If we're fundamentally selfish, how can we live well with other people? How are we going to establish uh, viable relationships with other people? Secondly, if we're fundamentally selfish and out for each other, how do we avoid getting into a war of all against all, a Hobbesian world? Uh, thirdly, how do we construct a political system if people are fundamentally system, selfish when some sort of public good comes out of it? And fourthly, how do we run an economy if people are out for themselves? So morality, politics, economics all have to be built around this assumption that the psychology of human beings is one that's geared to self-interested behavior. Once you assume everybody's basically selfish, everything has to be reworked to explain how that can Kant's term for this is unsocial sociability, how you can create sociable creatures out of unsocial creatures. Have we all, we've already assumed the the, the primacy of the individual in this in this way of putting this haven't we we've already assumed that the the problem is an individual problem not a community problem yes this is an individualist way of thinking and, and precisely when you look at someone like Hobbes who's from in many respects I think the beginning of this is a set of philosophical and moral and political problems Hobbes systematically presents himself as an individualist thinker and it replaces a whole assumption that really people are not you shouldn't think in terms of individuals. You should think about communities. You should think about social roles, and people inhabit social roles. If you ask who someone is in a 16th century context, they are the social role they inhabit. They're the vicar or they're the, they're the man, lord of the manor or whatever. Once you move into the uh, much more free-flowing world of a more commercial society, individualism becomes – I mean, one of the questions that's underlying here is what's the relationship between this and a, a commercial capitalist society? And, and it's a push-pull relationship – Commercial capitalism encourages individualism and selfish behavior, but if you think people are individualist and selfish, then commercial capitalism seems the best sort of society to have or the only sort of society you can have. So the, the, the two interact with each other and feed on each other and construct each other so that by the 18th century, commercial society uh, begins to erode traditional forms of life. Individualism comes to the fore. And, and in going back to selfishness, selfishness ends up uh, famously through Adam Smith in terms of, you know, uh, I, I seek my own interest and by seeking my own interest, I inadvertently benefit the, the wider society, the baker and the whoever it is, you know, um, this in, invisible hand that yes. does this. So th this becomes my, my selfishness is a benefit to the wider society. So selfishness goes from being something that we ought to be condemned for to being something that we ought to be uh, praised for almost. Yes. This is, I mean, this is, as it were, Smith's solution to the problem that Hobbes presents. If, in Hobbes's world, if people pursue their own interests, they come into conflict with each other. In the end, they're going to kill each other. In Smith's world, if people pursue their own interests, they get rich. But in the process, they make other people rich too. They make the whole society better off. And therefore, they can live satisfactory together. So in that sense, Smith is giving you an account of how through the hidden hand of the market, self-interested individuals, selfish individuals can benefit each other unintentionally. And this is a part of, as far as Smith is concerned, I would say, a divine plan. He's, he's very clear that there's a that, there, that that's, this is only true because of a providential ordering. I see. Smith is no Christian, but he's a deist. He's convinced there's providential ordering here. So the invisible hand is a sort of modern Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of beautiful work which shows that the whole language of the invisible hand comes out of sermons. It's a it's a theological language which he which he takes up and he expects his readers to recognise that it's a that it's a theological language that he's using. So in that sense, he expects that as... There are lots of other references, which are clearly references to providence, but that's one of them. And you buy this idea that uh, the, the, the uh, invisible hand is the thing that benefits uh, the whole community and thereby, you know, my selfishness is a virtue. No, no, I don't. And I think there, there are several respects in which Smith just, I think one has to say, cheats. The providential part of his argument is that he wants to say that you, you, you work hard to get money. 
what do you want to spend the money on in modern life? You know, you want fancy cars, you want uh, yachts, helicopters, so on. Uh, how much that is that? <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm not in the helicopter, but, you know, no, I'll let that one pass. If we're at Davos, yes. Yes, if you're at Davos, that's presumably what you want. So the question, the question Smith asks is how much satisfaction do you get from these things? Then the answer is virtually none. I mean, you're not any happier than the person who's got a Ford Cortina and sits in the pub and has a pint if you're in, in, in Davos with your private helicopter. But you think you're going to be. And this is a delusion. And this delusion is what you work for. And this drives the economy. The pursuit of wealth drives an economy in which the rewards are actually illusory, but in which then people are motivated to pursue those rewards despite the fact they're illusory, and everybody in the end benefits from this delusion. So this is, again, a providential design. People are actually working for other people when they think they're working for themselves. And in that sense, I, th I mean, I think Smith's rather clever to see uh, that the rewards of, of, of great wealth aren't, by and large, worth the effort of acquiring the great wealth. But where Smith, I think, is entirely um, underhand and, 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 and hypocritical is he insists against all the evidence that if you work hard, in the end, you'll get rewarded. That in a, in a commercial society, if you put the effort in and if you're prudent, as he would call it, and if you don't make silly mistakes, you will always get rich. Well, this is just nonsense. Plenty of people work hard. <laughs> try very hard, and, and they're unlucky in some respect or other. Yeah. Their ship sinks yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And he's, he's quite unwilling to recognize the, the degree of risk that's built into commerce. He's quite un, unwilling to see that, that capitalist society works through <clears throat> what Schumpeter called creative destruction. There's virtually no creative destruction in Smith's account of capitalism. So he doesn't understand the failure or the price of failure or the cost of failure or what people... That's right. He doesn't understand that at all. He does understand the low type of benefits you get, but he doesn't understand the cost of failure. And, and then in the book, I do a, a, a long discussion of Smith's views on famine because his views on famine, I think, are completely uh, unsatisfactory intellectually and unsatisfactory in terms of his understanding of his own world. Famine is a real thing in his world. Famine in Ireland... He should know perfectly well about famine in Ireland. Smith's argument about famine is famine is always caused solely by government intervention to try and prevent famine. So it's a failure of the market. It's a, it's a, the market would always prevent famine. I see. Yes. It, it's the failure yeah. of state intervention. I mean. yeah. It's yeah. a failure. Yeah. States intervene and, they, and, and they're less effective and reliable and efficient than markets. And so when the state inter intervenes, it, it messes up the market. And so people have famine. Now, if you look at famines in Ireland in the, that period, that's not the problem. The problem isn't state. There's a complete absence of state intervention. People starve, although there's grain loaded in the ships and grain often being exported. They starve in the midst of plenty because they don't have enough money. And Smith explains very carefully in another chapter of his book how this happens, which is that in a period of famine, people lay off workers and people take work for very low wages because people are being laid off. At the same time, prices rise. There's a terrible scissors effect where wages go down and prices go up and people, even in work, begin to starve. Smith denies that that happens. And, and you contrast Smith's understanding of famine with Burke's understanding. That you, you can, you, Burke, and Burke, Burke gets Burke, it. Burke has seen famine in Ireland. And Burke, therefore, gets it. He knows perfectly well that famine can occur within a, a perfectly functioning commercial society where people don't have enough money to pay the high price of, of grain in, in, in the marketplace. And Burke has a simple answer. Burke says there is only one solution in this situation. It's charity. Now, hmm. Smith, there's no mention of the word charity in the whole of the wealth of nations. And if you turn to the theory of moral sentiments, I was shocked to discover there are, I think the word charity occurs three times. In a 450-page book. And presumably charity for Smith is something that goes against the mechanism of the market. Yes. So he, he may even actually think negatively. I think he probably doesn't. If you, his friends invented these stories about how he was really charitable in secret, but no one's ever found any evidence that he was. <laughs> and, 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 and the simple test is go and look at his will. There are no charitable donations in his will. None. Look at David Hume's will. No charitable donations. Hume uh, leaves his money to his nephew to improve his house and things. He says, if my nephew turns out to be completely useless, some of this can go to the poor. But there's nothing to the poor unless his nephew falls down on the job. It's, it, these are people who do not believe in, who believe charities in, in interference with the market and therefore are against it. So this is one story which, you know, takes us from uh, the sort of I don't know, late Middle Ages into this very modern world. It sounds like a very modern world you're describing now. So that's one part of the story that you're giving in this book. But there's lots of other 
narratives that's going on as a part of, you don't like the term enlightenment project, you say enlightenment paradigm, because they're not all trying to do the same thing. But yes, there's the other and the other story is the way in which you mentioned before pleasure um, and the idea of satisfaction, but the way in which um, happiness and pleasure get elided. This is another part of the story, isn't it? Yes, this is. I mean, I think this is a, a, a deep and fundamental error. Someone who has found some happiness in life, pleasure and happiness are not the same thing. You can have lots of pleasures, and it's nice to have lots of pleasures, but you can have lots of pleasures and be utterly miserable. And you can be happy while you're having relatively few pleasures. And to, if you look at late 17th, 18th century discussions of, of pleasure and happiness, and this is particularly in the context of the American idea of the pursuit of happiness, if you look at the discussions of what that means, and it's a phrase that everyone's using at the time, what they assume happiness is, is an uninterrupted succession of pleasures. And if you're pursuing happiness, what you're doing is you're pursuing pleasure. And, and the only people occasionally you get the old theologian who says, well, there can be no true happiness except in heaven. But otherwise, it's, it's, it's universally accepted that pleasure and happiness are, are to be identified with each other. And, and that creates a notion of what human beings are, which is that they're pleasure maximizers, which is precisely what they are in Hobbes. You set out, Hobbes, this is why for Hobbes you accumulate power because power is the means to pleasure. And you accumulate power in the way that other, one form of power is money. So you accumulate wealth, you accumulate power in order to maximize pleasure. And, and what we're talking about is the creation of a culture in, what, in which maximization or instrumental thinking is what you're all about, what everybody is necessarily all about. Uh, and, and that leads to a picture of human beings as being constantly after something that they can never quite get hold of because you can never have enough money or can never get enough satisfaction. And in that sense, you're constantly going to be after all more appetites become insatiable. That's the subtitle of the book. Yes, 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 yes. Is this so there's lots of things to pick up on this, which is fascinating. So let's start with one of them, which is that there seems to be a move towards um the idea that things need to be countable uh, if they're going to exist. Um, if you're going to take them to exist, we live in a mechanistic universe. I guess that's the assumption. So unless you can unless you Unless you can count it, it's not really there. Yeah. And, 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 and pleasure has a sort of, you know, it's a sort of quasi-countable sort of quality. Yes, I mean, Bentham's great claim is that you can count it, and he produces a philosophic calculus in which he tries to, to count pleasures. And this involves insisting that there are no higher pleasures and lower pleasures, that poetry is the same as Skittles and so on. Uh, one of the things I do is go and try and trace that way of thinking back. And the number of people who say, well, what we do need is an account book. And what we need to do is look at the bottom line and see what's on the bottom of the accounts. And this runs through a whole literature for 100 years of people saying, it begins, as far as I can say, with Pierre Bell in, in 1680s, saying, if you want to weigh out whether someone is happy or unhappy, you just need to count their pleasures on the one side and count their pains on the other and, and, and work out the intensity of the pleasures and the intensity of the pains. And then you can decide whether they're happy or unhappy. Bale's argument is that if you do this, you'll find that everybody's miserable. Oh, I see. And, 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 and we'd all probably be better off dead. And this is for Bale proof that there isn't a good God in charge of things. Um, and, and this is the, becomes the invention, according to Leibniz. Leibniz says this is theodicy. This is where theodicy begins. This is where theodicy begins. Theodicy being theodicy. the justification, justification yes. of God in the face of... In the face of uh, the claim that clearly he's like, fallen down on the job because, we, uh, you know... We're one, unhappy. One hour of toothache outweighs... A year of happy marriage in yes. Bale's way of thinking of things. Yes, 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 yes. So this, so this um, idea that uh, um, you have to count happiness as a sort of account book. This also gets elided with a sense of moral virtue or what counts as right and wrong. I mean, in utilitarianism, what is you know what counts as right is what counts as the good is the the excess of pleasure over over pain. Um, you know, in in some formulations of it, at least, yeah. and so forth. So, does this get? So, it leads to a purely instrumental view about morality. Morality yes. becomes those things which increase pleasure and reduce pain. And morality sort of disappears. Doesn't it, well, this famous book by Macintyre called After Virtue. Essentially, what's happened here is there is no morality anymore. If you take a strong view about what morality is, if you think morality is doing good for its own sake, or if you think morality is sacrificing your own interests for the welfare of others. There is no morality here. The assumption is that you will always be trying to increase your own benefits 
at least along with those of other people or because you take pleasure in the benefits of other people. Uh, and so you will always be self-interested in your behavior and your behavior is intelligent behavior is instrumentally designed to increase pleasure. So you, there's no point in saying, for example, that chastity is a virtue that you ought to respect. The question is, are you happy or are you unhappy? So if adultery makes you happy, adultery is a good idea. And, you know, for people like David Hume, the monkish virtues of chastity and so on uh, are to be thrown out as being uh, interfering with pleasure. While on the other hand, certain other qualities like um, paying your bills on time or respecting uh, property or whatever are to be preserved because uh, they enable society to function effectively and we all benefit from that. I mean, presumably so, they had a sense of a short-term hedonic sort of benefit against a sort of longer-term, yes. you know, so you don't... It's not just sex no. and drugs and rock and roll, as no, it were. No, because, because that tends to work out rather badly quite quickly. In the end, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, and, and Smith's central claim is that people miscalculate the future benefits, and that's why they work so hard to get wealth when, in fact, you know, many of them don't live enough to see the benefit of it. And when they do, it turns out that it's all rather tawdry anyway. And so in that sense, Smith thinks we're very bad at doing the long-term calculation. Because we, I, oh, I see. So it's the reverse of the marshmallow test. That you know that famous marshmallow. There's a, some sort of psychology marshmallow test, which is that if you if you um, if you give a child uh, one marshmallow and say, look, if you wait for twenty minutes, I'll give you two marshmallows. Okay. And the idea is that if if, if you're good at deferring your gratification, you'll end up. They, the psychologists say you'll end up being very happy and very wealthy and so forth like that. But, but Smith so, think, no, Smith thinks Smith thinks that's what people do, and it doesn't work out. Well. <laughs> yes, because because you keep deferring it in the end, and in the end you have a, you, you leave a lot of money to yes. your nephew. Yes, yes. exactly. Um, the events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. I mean, I'm presuming at this time, you don't you don't talk about this uh, a lot in your book, but I'm presuming as this whole thing's you know, this whole worldview, this Western worldview is changing. There are people, I guess, like the church, but on the on the sides of this going, hang on a second, hang on a second. This is this is not the direction we should be going in. Yes. And I mean, one of the things I do at the end is I, I give a little list of how all the books I've been talking about were put on the index by the Catholic Church. I mean, in that sense, what we're dealing with here is... Uh, anti-Christianity, in cases of people like David Smith, it's uh, Adam Smith, it's, it, it's deism. In the case of David Hume, it's, it, it's something beyond that. It's, it's some agnosticism, we might say. But it's anti-Christianity in all, in all its forms, virtually. Uh, and so what this secularized, individualized moral philosophy and, 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 and economic theory is understood to be 
a replacement for Christian values, and consequently the church always opposes it. Both the Catholic and the Anglican churches oppose it. What's, what's striking, I think, is how ineffectual they are in their opposition and the extent to which these become the orthodox dominant ideas of the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, presumably, one of the things that this new way of thinking has going for it is that it's, uh, and I'm here sort of wanting you to talk a bit about your previous work on on uh, history and, and science and so forth, is that it seems to fit in with a new way of thinking about the universe, that, that, that the universe is not, you know, structured as the Catholic Church would have it, but it's structured completely differently. There's different sorts of rules. And this looks like a sort of a new ethic for a new universe. Yes, it's certainly that. I mean, I mean one of the things that's happening here is that Aristotelian philosophy which is the dominant philosophy in the Middle Ages and is the central philosophy for Catholic teaching, comes under attack from two directions. One is from the new science, which says Aristotle is completely wrong, uh, and the other is from this new ethical and moral perspective, which says uh, Aristotelian philosophy is all about moderation and human beings aren't like that, and Aristotelian philosophy is all about virtue and human beings are selfish. And 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 so this is about the substitution for Aristotle replacement of Aristotelian philosophy by, by uh, alternatives. And one of the other things that happens, Newton is the first person to give a really sophisticated account of how you can have an interactive system, the solar system, where all the parts are interacting with each other and balancing each other off. You can't, until you've got that sort of model in your mind, you can't think Adam Smith's economic theory. One of the questions is, why, are there no, why is there no economics until the 18th century? People are doing business yes. for centuries. Ancient Greeks do lots of business, lots of business in, in Renaissance Florence. Capitalism isn't as old as the hills, but a theory of how it works is a purely 18th century invention. And the reason it exists, I think, in the 18th century is because they find in Newton, Adam Smith writes a history of astronomy in which he explains carefully how brilliant Newton is at this. They find in Newton an account of how systems can interact and balance each other out and how they can be self-correcting. Oh, and see. that means that you can take out of the new science an account of s social order, which is about the interacting and self-balancing of the system. So have I got this right? So um, before what you describe, of course there's business, people trade, there's all sorts of trade, but trade is one part of a life and there's other bits of life too and that, that, that are not sort of connected with that. You know? but, but once you have this integration of economics and a particular worldview about the universe there's no space outside economics there's no bit beyond economics yes yes that's right i mean you can see this coming i find a lovely 15th century text where uh which is about uh, preventing uh the expansion of 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 pastoral farming which gets rid of uh employment in agriculture and the person writing it says we can talk about this but all this talk is going to get us nowhere. We can legislate, but it's all going to get nowhere because people pursue profit. And once they see the profits, they're going to do it anyway, and we're not going to be able to stop them. In that sense, he's got the notion that the economy is functioning as a machine from which you can't escape, that people are trapped within the pursuits of profit. But there is still, for him and for everybody in that period, a ways of thinking outside this, even if they think it's hard to step out of it. By the time you get to the world of Adam Smith, it's a closed system. You can't yes. find a reference point outside the system where you can say, this isn't how you ought to think about the world. Because the psychology, the economic theory, the political theory are all locked together and supporting each yes, other. Yes, I can see that. Um, the word insatiable. So yes. that's, that's, there, that's there in the title and is key to this. So, um, you know, we now have, as a, as a, as a, point, of, uh, as a point of philosophy that many people believe in, the idea that economic growth, for instance, the idea that uh, economic growth is always something we want to uh, celebrate. And then you get other people like, I guess, David Attenborough famously, who wrote that, you know, the idea only a mad person can believe in infinite growth on a finite planet, you know, or an economist or an economist could believe this. So from that Attenborough perspective, that, you know, what you're describing is a link between insatiability and economics. Yes, insatiability is destructive, and and once it grows, the, once it's grown fast enough, it's clear it's going to destroy any system if it's if there are no limits upon it. And in that sense, one of the 
uh, the, the argument of the book has to be that this sort of mode of thinking in the end destroys itself. Yes. Um, I, I think that's right. Um, the question of how you stop this mode of thinking is another one. I mean, I do think that climate change is creating tremendous pressures. I also think that this whole mode of thought con was constructed around a world of limited resources. The whole of economics is built around the notion that there is shortage of supply. If you move into a world of automation, if you will move into a world of, 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 of renewable energy, it's quite possible that your moral views, your values will shift simply because the things that were, you had to train people to work hard, you had to train people to defer gratification. A lot of that is disappearing from our world. You know, it, I, you children see, I, are much less accustomed to deferred gratification now than they were in my childhood. And yet I, so, you know, when I'm, I have children, I've got another one just about to come. And when I, you know, teach my children about values, I mean, one of the things that's hard to do with a two-year-old that I have is, is the whole idea of enough. You know, that, that, that there is such a thing as enough. And enough is a sort of moral, uh, there's a sort of moral valency to the idea of enough, which it strikes me as terribly important, you know, and that, and that you need to inculcate that. You know, p part of the point of this book is saying that there were generations for which that was, were trying to wipe that away. Is yes. that right? Yes. And um, what replaced it, what, what came in to substitute for enough were things that were regarded as luxuries. Tea and coffee were the first luxuries. Sugar is one of the first luxuries. Prints on walls are, are the early luxuries. And these new luxuries create consumer demand and consumer demand famously Early 18th century workers don't work on Mondays. They, they, they drink on Sundays. They don't turn up for work on Mondays. It's called Saint Monday. And then they work hard. That's hangover day, is it? Yes, it's hangover okay. day. Okay. Then they work hard for three or four days of the week, pick up their paycheck, and then take a long weekend. Mm -hmm. By the middle of the 18th century, workers have been trained to understand that if they work on Mondays, then they'll be able to afford luxuries. And people like one of the things Smith is doing is saying that workers aren't lazy. If you, if they're given, incentives in the sense of that they've got something to spend their money on, if there are consumer goods available to them, they will respond with hard work. Um, and in that sense, what, what, what commercial society does is create a sense that there's always more to be got. And therefore, in that sense, it creates a sense that there isn't enough. You could always think, I'd like to have a bigger car. I'd like to have um, uh, a new luxury. Uh, the one thing you don't talk about in your book, because it's out of the period, and well, unless I've missed it, is is but it, it's very relevant. It seems to me is that lecture by Keynes about the economic possibilities for our grandchildren. Do you know that one where he says that this is in the sort of I guess it's in the thirties, and he's saying that I'm going to make some predictions. You know, economic growth is going to go on and on and on and on, and and he gives a figure for it, and he was roughly right about that, and he said, and because of that, in 50, 100 years' time, uh, we're all going to be lazing around yes. and, and uh, enjoying the fruits of our labour and, you know, enjoying playing with our children and reading books and, and so forth. And it's not true. In fact, it's we're not working longer hours than ever before. Exactly right. You know? yes. Exactly. And, and in my lifetime, I've seen, you know, in my line of work, people work harder and harder now and much harder than they did 30, 40 years ago. This is a widespread... This is the iron cage yeah, that was... It's this the iron the cage. The cage has got more and more... Demanding and tighter around us. I think that's right. Uh, and we are trapped in an increasingly rat, rat race world. I mean, what, the extent to which my students have to cultivate CVs that will get them jobs, which means they've got to do voluntary work and volunteering and, and all in order to show that they are uh, innovative and, and, uh, and independent and responsible and so on. Forty years ago, young people weren't required to be any of those things. Look at that! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it. No, well, I, no one, no one expected it of us. So what's so what's the answer to all this? I mean, right at the beginning of the book, I mean, one of the first things you mention is Alistair McIntyre's, for me, great book after Virtue, nineteen eighty one. Um, you know, I think it's probably what for me ethically one of the most formative books uh, you know I've ever read, and. Um, I mean, McIntyre fam famously thinks the answer is a return to a form of, I don't know, Aristotle communitarianism, virtue ethics, um, which has made a bit of a comeback, actually, and a number of things like that. That's You say that's not your, that's not really your answer. Uh, 
That's not my answer. I mean, in McIntyre's case, McIntyre had been a Marxist. So yes. he, I mean, there are various possible answers here. There's, there's socialism as a solution. There's, there's uh, Christianity in various forms as a solution and a return to virtue ethics as a solution. There's ways of mitigating what you, what you might call social democracy. We, we're, okay, we are a bit like this, but let's find ways of mitigating and controlling it. Um, I, I, I suppose of those three, I'm a sort of inadequate social democrat. Right. Um, but I think controlling the system. The system is very, almost impossible to control. The whole point about the system is we can't control it. And when we, you know, there's a lot of reasons for thinking that Smith is right, that when we try and control it, the outcomes are, are, are much worse than we intend them to be because they have the un- we don't foresee the unintended consequences. Brexit is not a word I want to just bring up now. I just want to, I just want to bring up the word Brexit. I, don't, I know it's boring on every single conversation probably these days people bring up the word Brexit, but there is a sense in which for some people... Uh, that sort of iron cage and those who are the victims of that iron cage, there was a sense of, I don't know if creative destruction, but a sense of wanting to sort of bash that cage, even not knowing that it was going to economically benefit them, that still there was some uh, attempt to free themselves from that. Yes, and, and well, I, I mean, I think the, the, the series of perfectly reasonable demands underlay Brexit. Uh, one is take back control, the notion that people should have a more greater sense of being in control of their own destiny. Uh, and if con- if control is somewhere far away in Brussels by, by people you don't know and understand, it's quite different from the notion that your local MP uh, represents you and has, has control. And the other is, I think, a perfectly correct view that certain types of immigration drive down wages. If you're in, like, I live near, in a village near Leicester, talk to the electrician who was working on my house. He says, you know, Polish electricians were turning out, underbidding me all the time. For people like that, it, there's no doubt that it became harder to get good wages for skilled workers of certain sorts because of immigration. And, and it, in the, for certain people, therefore, Brexit is a perfectly rational economic choice. The notion that people who voted Brexit are always not thinking about their economic prospects seems to me entirely wrong. Lots of them had a perfectly good understanding of their economic interests. Is there any space outside this? This, uh, you know, you know, we've, we, you've described in some ways quite a depressing uh, um, coalition of forces, a worldview, an, an economic, you know, an economic system, all of which is all encompassing. And you know, unless you go and live, unless we all choose to go and live in the Amazon or something, it's almost feels like it's almost impossible to. Think outside of it, you know. It's, it's, it's not think, quite Fukuyama, you know, but but that, in that side of it, it's one. You know, capitalism is one. Even the Labour Party thinks capitalism is one. Yes, you know? it's not. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, to throw another name in here, in a sense, it's Foucault. It's this notion that we've got got caught up in a system that we can't have no control over. But I think the the best thing to do is to is to think about pleasure and happiness, to think about what enough constitutes, to ask oneself about one's own goals in terms of happiness, ask oneself whether one can oneself recognize enough when one has it, and in that sense shift one's own behavior and, and, and one, the behavior of one's children, talk to one's children. Because it's always been the case that although the system has worked in certain ways, individuals within the system and families within the system and communities within the system have tried to preserve alternative values and alternative. The question is, is A, I mean, it's, it seems to me tremendously important that people do that, otherwise they become miserable. The other question is, can you build that up to the point where, in which it can actually shift the way in which the system is operated and the ways in which it's controlled? And, and we're a long way from achieving that. And we're a long way, I think, from having a good theory of how to achieve that assuming that, you know, my view that socialism tends not to work very well. Um, so in that sense, I think we need to think much harder about how we would do it. But I, I do think the starting point actually is to think about happiness. So um, on your account, the, the first person that sort of really dents this um, medieval or this worldview of Christianity, Aristotle, the first person that comes in and punches it is Machiavelli. Yes. Machiavelli is the first person to say that if you want to be good at politics, there's an enormous literature through the Middle Ages which says that if you want to be good at politics, you must be a good person. And if you're a good person, you will be a good ruler and so on and so forth. And there's what's called the mirror of princes literature where you teach the prince how to be a good person. It will follow automatically. Machiavelli says this is rubbish, right? If you want to be good at politics, you're going to have to kill some people. You're going to have to learn how to lie. You're going to have to present a false face to the world. 
priests will tell you this is wicked behavior. Fine, they can tell, they can have their own standards. <laughs> We're not talking to them. This is what works in politics. So Machiavelli is the first person to say that there are com- different systems of values for different types of activity. And there is, you just have to decide what do I can, am I in politics or am I in religion? You can't be in both at once. And in that sense, Machiavelli sets up this clash between systems in which the choice between them becomes, as it were, arbitrary. You can say, no, this isn't for me. I don't like all this bloodshed. I'm going to give up and go to a monastery, and that's fine. But it's no longer politics. Now, Machiavelli's assumption is if you enter into politics, you've got to understand that there cannot be such a thing as enough. In politics, you always need more, more power, more power, more power. This is why the Romans conquered the world, because they understood that there was no stopping point. So this is the beginnings of insatiability. This, this is the beginnings of insatiability. And Machiavelli actually says everybody's insatiable, but he doesn't know. I don't think he means that when you start looking at what he says about other people. He means politi- politicians are insatiable. This leads to a whole language of what becomes a new language of interest and self-interest. Politicians are engaged in pursuing interests. Um, and in doing that, they're inflexible, they're predictable, they will never do something which is contrary to their own interests. And consequently, if they've made a treaty which turns out to be inconvenient, they'll forget it. That's how politics works. People like Richelieu in the early 17th century just said, this is politics, it's about interests. What Hobbes comes along and does is says, this isn't true just for politics, this is what human nature I is. See, and it's where we are all little Machiavellis. We are all little politicians. We are all pursuing insatiable appetites. We're all, therefore, as political actors are in conflict and competition with each other. This is what humanity, human life is. Once you've done that, the question then becomes, well, how can we live together? And you get on the path that leads you to Adam Smith and theories of free markets and so on. So, so Machiavelli so it goes Machiavelli, Hobbes. Then, then yeah. that sets up the problem. That sets up the problem. Um, Locke, try, Locke tries to tame the problem. Mandeville says you can't tame this problem. It's all oh, about yes, self-interest. Very cynical. Yes. Very cynical. Yes. And, and Smith and people say, oh, no, we can, we, we can get this under control. We can all be a little bit nice to each other, and it's not nearly as bad as it looks. So, that's, that, so for, for Machiavelli, what's, as it were, a local problem, a problem about politics, turns into a universal problem, a problem that you can't escape from. In Machiavelli's world, you can, as it were, say, I'm going to give up on politics and go into into religion. In Hobbes's world, there is no alternative to it. You, this is this is so where t- you are. Tell me where the sort of cosmology sort of comes in, because that I am I am I I don't think I read much cosmology in Machiavelli. So it's a it's a it's a it's a in, it, it's sort of statecraft. Still in Machiavelli, is that yeah, right? Or? Yeah, Machiavelli's got a traditional old-fashioned cosmology. He believes <clears throat> a little bit in astrology and things like that. He's not, the new science hasn't reached Machiavelli. No. Um, and, and, but the new science has reached Hobbes. Hobbes thinks yes. that Galileo is the greatest philosopher of all time, meaning using philosopher to mean scientist. He's a mechanist. He's a materialist. And he believes that uh, creatures are to be understood as essentially as mechanical systems. We, we, we respond to stimuli in predictable ways. We pursue pleasure. We flee pain. And this is, as it were, a mechanical system. And in that sense, as far as Hobbes is concerned, there's, there's no free will. It's a determinist system. Yeah. People like Locke come along afterwards and try and tamper with it to get a little bit, little bit of free will back in there so that you can have a notion of moral responsibility. The Hobbesian system, there's no notion of moral responsibility. And to some degree, this is drawn from classical sources too, where Hobbes goes back to Lucretius. Lucretius says, you can stand on the shore and see a ship foundering and people drowning, and you can take pleasure in this. And you take pleasure in it because you think, it's not happening to me. It's not me. It's not me. By the 18th century, they say, oh, no, but we have a natural sympathy with others. You're going to feel, oh, how awful it would be if that happened to me. And so they, they turn around this argument to say, well, no, we have a bond. there is a, a social bond between us and others, which is our imagination of being able to put ourselves in each other's shoes. If you read Hobbes, Hobbes has no imagination. But he's, uh, one of the things that happens in the ancient century is the novel, theatre are all designed to construct a, an ability to put yourself in other people's shoes, to build up sociability, to increase a sense of sympathy. So empathy becomes a empathy. becomes a problem for the first time, as it were, yes. in the 18th and, 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 and Mandeville says we don't have it, but being the cynic. The bees, isn't yes. it? Yes. And, and, and everybody after Mandeville says, no, we do. Yes, we certainly have empathy, and this enables us to care for the welfare of others because the f- sufferings of others become our own sufferings, and that means that we don't like to live with them. And so... For purely selfish reasons, we will try and prevent other people's suffering. 
So is is the sorry if I, if I understood you correctly because you might have been in passing said something that just like blows my mind is the invention of the novel which is an eighteenth century broadly eighteenth century thing is it a sort of epiphenomenon of of this um, yes of, I, of, of this I, I want to say that and and, and there's a, a lovely book of, about Diderot's um, by Freed on on, on Diderot's. Uh, analysis of paintings. 18th century paintings are designed to encourage you to look as a spectator and feel sympathy, you know, children with because dying Because it's been so heavily so problematised. Yes. It's, it's about how to train you to be the sort of person who will have these feelings. If you go back to earlier novels, Cervantes, for example, Cervantes, you know, all these terrible things happen in, in, in Don Quixote, but nobody cares. I mean, it's just it's rock and roll. It doesn't, nobody, <laughs> nobody feels much. But by the 18th century, it, it, these are all things that are meant to move you in a, in a quite new way. So that's way. why sentimentality exactly. gets come to be invented yes, in the 18th exactly. century. Exactly. And, and why people also think sentimentality feels a bit forced. Yes. Because, because they're going, we're all fundamentally selfish, but yes. boy, we've got to try and it's, find some emotional connection with the other and exactly. it becomes chocolate box because it's, it's not exactly. rooted in a worldview. Exactly. And one of, the, one of the interesting complicated things is what Shakespearean theatre involves quite a bit of... Uh, empathy and quite a bit of investment in others and actually builds up a lot of the things that novels later do. And precisely you can see Shakespeare playing with ideas of compassion, which I think are quite far ahead of it. I can, historians hate it when you say this, but I'm going to say ahead of his time. Yes, yes, yes. That's yes. to say, yes, yes. Uh, he's, he, he is exploring the question of, of what it would be like to have a society in which compassion was a more powerful influence than it is. Well, Hobbes just thinks it can't be there can't imagine such a world. Hobbes you, is still a Lucretian. You don't mention Descartes and people like that very much, mm. uh, which I, I'd have thought in a way that the sort of part of what you're describing is the sort of you know, what some call the egocentric predicament. I mean, the way in which you're sort of caught in a, in a bubble of your own. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I think, therefore, I am is this, and, is this bubble and Descartes tries to reach out to the world and does it through God and... That doesn't really work, but he's constantly sort of like, I know I exist, but I don't know you are. Yes. So there's another sort of, there's another yes. narrative about about the invention of sympathy, hasn't there? Which is a way of sort of trying to understand whether you actually exist. Yes, yes. And that's a different narrative. It's a different story, isn't it? It's a more yes. con- yours, is, yours is quite an Anglo-Saxon yes. story, yes. isn't it? Yes. And this is, this, I, mean, I mean, one of the tricky things here is, I mean, I, I use the term the Enlightenment paradigm. It's an Enlightenment paradigm I'm yes. talking about. There is a, a post-Cartesian Enlightenment that we could, one could talk about. There's a Germanic Enlightenment that I think is, uh, it, in the English-speaking world, I think this is the dominant tradition. Yes. And, and, and one of the things that, takes place within the Cartesian system is you create this this difference between mind and matter. While in the English-speaking world, uh, you know, Locke is quite happy to think about thinking matter. There's a sort of willingness to live with materialism and, and a, therefore an unwillingness to claim that we have immortal souls. Um, and, and that creates a quite different set of issues yes, this is, this from is, a Cartesian yes, view. Yes, this which does is, feel like a... You know, Anglo-Saxon, Scottish Enlightenment yes, type which, of... and which then becomes an American Enlightenment and leads to the, Amer- the, the American Declaration of Independence. So tell me about that, because that's, that's, that, that's where so much of this seems to yes, point. Yes, Well, I mean, one of the little puzzles here, for example, is to say the Declaration of Independence says we have a right to the pursuit of happiness. What is, well, a standard line of the time is that people pursue happiness inevitably because we seek pleasure and happiness is simply pleasure. We have no choice but to pursue happiness. So what would it mean to say we have a right to pursue happiness? And the, uh, the best I can make of this, no one seems to ask this question. Which Once you ask it, you see it's an obvious question, I think. The best I can make of this is, what, well, what would it require for us to be able to satisfactorily pursue happiness? And then the question is, well, what sort of happiness are you trying to pursue? So if you want to pursue happiness by wealth, then you need markets in which you can effort can be rewarded. If you want to pursue happiness by uh, going into politics, then you need a career open to talent. If you want to pursue happiness by re- in religion, you might need freedom of conscience. So if you think about the different ways in which you might pursue happiness, they actually produce a whole range of liberal values, free markets, career open to talent, uh, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, all become things which are prerequisites for a pursuit of happiness, given that you can't predict how someone may want to pursue happiness. So in that sense, I think the pursuit of happiness becomes a right because it's assumed, yes, everybody 
is bound to pursue happiness. But the question is, how do you give them the opportunity to pursue it reasonably successfully? And the answer is you've got to give them a whole range of freedoms. And those freedoms become the freedoms of the, of the liberal political order. And so under, underpinning, as it were, liberal values is the, the, the assumption that we're all pursuing happiness. I think we need to, we'll just end. We, we've got to end in a minute because this conversation go on and on. It's absolutely fascinating. But just talking about the sort of, you know, that liberalism that you just, that you just mentioned there. We're often being told now that we're, you know, that liberalism is, is in crisis or is, is, is certainly being challenged um, by whatever, whatever post-liberalism, the rise of re-nationalism is, is uh, all that sort of liberal internationalism that's fading away and so forth. Does that strike you as, as, uh, you know, uh, look with your historian hat, the moment that we're living in, does it seem like some of these things that you've been writing about are things that are beginning to crumble? Yes. I, and I think that's why I could write the book now, because they're beginning to crumble. You can step back and, and get a look at them, I think, in a new way. If you're within that way of thinking, it's hard to see it. I think because they're crumbling, it's clearer what, the, what they are. And I do think there's a whole series of things, economic crisis, political crisis, uh, of various sorts, which are putting the liberal freedoms under pressure. And the notion that free markets will give us what we want is increasingly, I think, under pressure. Uh, and I think fundamentally, in contemporary consumer society, what we're doing is testing to its destruction the note that if you give people the opportunity to pursue happiness by buying pleasure, they'll make themselves happy. And what we're seeing, I think, in many ways is, no, they won't. They'll make themselves neurotic and they'll make themselves miserable in various ways. So in that sense, I think uh, we're, we're experiencing uh, the, the failure of the notion that giving people consumer luxuries is going to make them happier. And the more consumer luxuries we have, the more color televisions and so forth, uh, the more we can feel the limits of the pleasures that come with them. Uh, and I think that's a new crisis because pros prosperity on that scale, the sort of prosperity we have now, has never existed in cultures before. So the, no, the test of what it's like to live in a, a prosperous society is, a is one that's only been in place for 30 or 40 years. Uh, and now televisions, washing machines, and so on, cars and so on, all of these extraordinary luxuries, which have made our lives better in all sorts of important ways, but they have left us internally no better off. And so fundamentally, I think what lies at the failure of liberalism is this conception of human nature. And it's the conception of human nature that's deficient here is the notion that we're pleasure-maximizing machines. Uh, and, and as long as you work within that model, then you're going to have a selfishness theory of humans. And as long as you've got a selfishness theory of humans, you're actually going to create societies in which humans are very unhappy. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I think that's... Now, I can't finish by saying... Uh... I have had this conversation of pleasure and profit as, as people <laughs> I've gained, I've gained, a, but edification, I, I think is, uh, is something you definitely give us. It's, uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for writing the book. Uh, I've learned a lot from it and, um, thank well, you for talking well, to Thank me. you. I've enjoyed the conversation. <laughs>